Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. We bring your brand narrative alive via original or value-added, digitally curated thought leadership content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. And welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer-co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. On today's show, our guest is Amy Price, PhD, a Stanford University Senior Research Scientist for Anesthesia Informatics and Media Lab. Dr. Price's background is in international relief work, clinical neurocognitive rehabilitation, and includes service on boards of multiple patient organizations. As a trauma survivor, she developed a flexible mindset to relate to all stakeholders and cultures. Her experience and training has demonstrated that shared knowledge, interdisciplinary collaboration, and evidence-based research is the voice that will develop the future. Follow her work on Twitter via at Amy Price, PhD. So Fred, with that introduction, over to you. Thanks so much, Greg. And Amy, welcome to Pop Health Week. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for asking me. It's really a pleasure to get you on. We were introduced through a close friend of all three of us, actually, Prashant Natarajan, who's been on this show as well. And it was really such a pleasure to talk to you. We went on for quite a long time, I know, as I recall. So why don't we start with give our audience a little sense of your background? Well, uh, who am I, right? One of those questions. Uh, I started out, we, my husband and I did international relief work for many years. And uh, then we had an unfortunate car accident. And I ended up with uh, brain, spine, uh, about $4 million in injuries. And uh, from the brain, I decided to rehab, and that meant going back to school. And I started to notice in my journey that uh, patients and members of the public, they didn't know the language and they didn't have a voice. So I thought I would start where I was and I would create a bridge between research and medicine and the public and so that we could all like play in the same play playground um, without making horrendous adaptations for each other and making it all a whole different thing entirely what my my goal and my vision was to be trained to be able to work what we do into the workflow of researchers clinicians um, patients and to develop relationships so that the focus could be on that, what we do together to build a future for each other. And now you're working, as I understand it, Stanford and BMJ? Yes. Um, so when I was, I didn't do the original uh, traditional route, I just started. And they finally, uh, they told me that actually, if you want to run a grant, you need a fellowship. Um, that was like kind of a precursor. So I said, oh, what's a fellowship? And uh, so they told me a little bit. So I thought of the two places that I would like to do a fellowship if I had a choice. And uh, so I went to the BMJ and I told them, um, I need a fellowship and I'm free. Like literally, I won't cost you any money. And um, they said, but we don't do fellowships that way. And I said, like, do you want me or not? And uh, these are, this is what I can bring. This is how I can help. And they said, of course. And then I went on 
um, afterwards uh, to work with them uh, as a for the patient partnership and as a research editor. And I find it's a it's a wonderful combination because I have the research methodology from Oxford. I have the editor space from uh, from BMJ, and uh, I have neuroscience from the Open University. So I have uh, lots of places to work from. That's really fantastic. And speaking of, you know, you've talked about this patient partnership and trying to bridge that gap, which is so critical. And, and we're now beginning to hear more and more from patients. Our voice matters. We, we want to be involved. We don't want to just be the subject of this. And I know you published a piece called Patient and Public Involvement in Research, A Journey to Co-Production in BMJ. What What is that? What is the co-production in terms of research and how does that work? So if uh, I'll use myself as an example. So if you were to work with me on a research project, you would be involved as a, a participant partner or member of the public on every aspect of that research that interested you. So I would train you for that specific person. Uh, but that's that's that specific uh, role. So for example, it wouldn't make you a statistician, but it would make you able to understand the statisticians, the statistics statistics on the project that you're working on. Um, if you wanted to be involved in interviewing, um, I would train you. Uh, I would train you to interview or have other people train you to interview. The more that they understand about research in general and uh, the more health literacy they gain because we all learn more by doing than um, just watching you know, a lecture or even um, answering questions, but when it's actually hands-on, it's good for all of us. And it builds relationships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm an individual involved in, in a research project myself, but it's nowhere close to that kind of a relationship. So how has this been received? What do researchers think about this? What about patients and their involvement? How have they got, felt about this type of an activity? Well, um, every patient or member of the public that has worked with me in the past um, would welcomes the opportunity to work with me again. And they often ask me, do you have another project that we can work on? And researchers are the same because if you bring it so it is something that they can do within their workflow and you don't bring a lot of extra work or rules um, and you, you make it work, then they are really happy to have the patients on board. And people say even um, at the BMJ with their papers, sometimes, they'll say, uh, we like what the patient reviewer said uh, much more than what the other reviewer said, because that brought up, brought up a point that we could really think about and do something about. And even if we can't do it for this research project, it's on our radar for the next uh, project. And, um, and so it's generally positive. And if it's not, I mean, it's really important with relationships that we work on them. It's not easy to be in a partnership with anyone, and it, and so it's it's all about kindergarten uh, and uh, principles like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Share your stuff. Um, don't touch other people's stuff unless you have permission. You know that uh, those kind of things. Uh, keep your mouth shut when uh, you know. Stay positive. Uh, reframe things. Think of the work that someone else put into something. And if you don't understand, ask. If somebody says something that 
that grates you or um, it comes across the wrong way or it hurts you, speak up, speak up and say, you know, when you said that, I felt like this. Or um, is there another way that, is there another way that we could do this? And I, as parties remain open like that, I mean, you develop relationships that last a lifetime. So it's, it's great. We make friends along the way. And what are the, I know there have been some studies you pointed out that showed some advantages to doing this. What are some of the things that there are some of the outcomes that have been improved by making it a co-production? Well, there's, uh, there's several ways that uh, co-production improves things culturally. Often we think we know about culture, but we don't. And we may, we may know about that culture, how uh, nationalities behave together in one country. And those same nationalities will behave completely differently uh, within another culture. But we don't know that because we, we can't be everywhere. And people that are a part of that culture and that are a patient, they know that from the ground up because they live it every day. So they can help us. They, they can help with uh, phrasing how we would phrase things. We may think it, it sounds beautiful. I remember the first time I did uh, test questions for uh, an online program. And uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Larry Chu, and I were working on them together. And we thought they were easy, but no one could answer them. So we had to go back to the drawing table and we had to peel aside, you know, all those layers of years of training. And we, we asked, uh, we asked our participants, um, what kind of question do you think would go well with this content? What kind of question could you answer? What was important to you? And that those adjustments make the difference. It makes a difference. It can increase your recruiting rates, sometimes 100%. Definitely, it will increase uh, retention, and it can also uh, increase something that this is a word that I really hate because it sounds like rules, um, but compliance. Okay, and so, and the reason why is because when people understand why they're doing something and how important it is, they're more likely to do it. And if you can give them just that information without weighing them down with your whole policies and procedures and share the, share the information that's needed to do the job. Um, that, also, and that also increases um, the validity of your research because you are getting the, uh, something that's not staged. You're getting uh, your research question answered. It might not be the same question you thought you were asking. Uh, and uh, it like all kinds of different perspectives can come. But when you combine that with the numbers research, it can make a phenomenal impact. Mm -hmm. So is this perhaps the future of research, moving more into all these uh, various trials, et cetera, being co-productions? I believe so. I, I mean, I believe, I believe it is. When I first started at Oxford, they did a short scoping review to decide if my project was um, suitable. And they told me that um, there wasn't enough on the literature to make it worthwhile, and it might be a passing fad. Um, but now I see. Uh, and I said, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm paying for it. I'm doing it. And uh, I now we're seeing NIH is now asking for public and patient involvement. Uh, most major funders in the world have seen a benefit uh, in, in doing just that. Because in, in the end, I've, 
if you have an implementation of a, a product, a device, and you don't have end user buy-in, then you're not going to be able to implement that. And if you don't ask the actual people that are using the device on a daily basis or the intervention, then you're not really going to know what went wrong or what went right or how you can make it better. And I'm finding like there's a trend because I'm working with the World Health Organization on some uh, research and we find for uh, public and uh, protective gear. Uh, and we're finding that the manufacturers, we have taken things back to them before it's ever in print. As soon as we mentioned it, um, they're going back and changing their product to be more user-friendly. So, I mean, I think that's really progress. That's really fantastic. I also get this sense from you, Amy, that when somebody puts a wall in front of you, you figure out some way to get through it or over it. Is that sort of been some of your makeup? Well, you know, um, I don't really think that no is a good word. So I really think that if, um, if I want to do something, then I'll be sorry if I don't try. And so if, so if it doesn't work one way, then I will, uh, I will try another way and I will work around it if I have to change myself, change my environment, um, change my training. Um, I'm up for that. I, I actually, how I met uh, Prashant is he worked with us with doing um, training for people for public and patient uh, involvement and now in the area of uh, intelligence and machine learning. Because all you see everywhere are all these articles saying are patients for it and against it. They don't even know what it is. They don't know, they can't be for it and against it because they don't know the real like advantages or disadvantages. So they don't have enough knowledge to make a vote. So it's not a shared um, enterprise. It's not a shared decision. And um, my first, uh, this was one of my first no's uh, from the brain injury, all my math skills, which were minor to begin with, were gone. And I wanted to do brain rehab on myself because there wasn't very much available. And I needed to know what to do, what would work, what kind of learning things would work. So somebody said, well, if you had a cognitive um, model, if you built a cognitive model, you could do that. And I said, well, um, I don't know anything about that. And they said, well, you, you just need a lot of math skills. So I, had my, I signed up for the advanced statistics class, not even knowing uh, or remembering what the infinity symbol stood for. I managed to pass the initial test to get in. And then I exposed my ignorance when I was there. Um, and the reason I did that was it was a precursor to build a model. And so I actually was able to build the model that would have been a no on every front. Uh, I was able to build the model and I was able to help myself I recover brain function and also uh, several other people. Uh, so, you know, um, no is just a word. And if you're just tuning in to Pop Health Week, our guest is Amy Price, PhD, a Stanford research scientist in anesthesia informatics and media lab. For more information or to learn more about her work, follow her on Twitter via at Amy Price, PhD. 
That's fantastic. And I know as we've talked and, and uh, you've written across a broad spectrum of different areas that are really fascinating. And one of them, another piece you wrote, I think it was my path through my, my pandemic grief and the Japanese art of Kintsugi. Can you talk a little bit about that article and what Kintsugi is? I sure can. Kintsugi is a Japanese tradition. I don't know about you, but almost everyone has had something precious broken. An object, a car, um, you know, sometimes we break people and we don't mean to. And when something's broken, it also does something to the relationship because it's almost like you can never face that person the same way. And the person that's broken, it's difficult for them too, because just to be able to offer forgiveness and to trust again, it's tough. So my husband actually died um, during the pandemic of COVID before the vaccine. And there was um, a lot to forgive because he was infected by a healthcare worker uh, in an institution and we had kept him you know, safe up to that time. And then there were work situations. There were all kinds of things in my life just being in that position and isolated. It was really tough. And I came across the Kintsugi. And the beautiful thing about it is that when you mend something for someone else, that's healing to them because you're creating for them. And so they would take um, pottery or jewelry or something that had been broken and they would mend it back together with strands of gold. And so the gold and the pottery would create something more original and beautiful than the original product. And in life, you know, probably everything that we love, one way or another, we end up, we'll end up losing. It'll end up changing. Something will happen. But what will become of that love? And the Kintsugi is as you and as your community that mends together for you. You become stronger together. You become stronger together. And, and rather than um, people would say, oh, you're just taking this grief really well. I'm like, what kind of comment is that? What kind of one? You know, and just because people, they don't know what to say. And that's okay. It's okay, right? Because at least they cared enough to say something. Um, but the thing is, there's a lot in society that, that says, heal yourself. And there's a time when we have to realize we're not going to heal ourselves. There's, it's going to take time. And it's going to take others. And the very people that caused us brokenness maybe also part of our healing and that's the that's the way of the future that's the way of the future to um to bring healing uh through relationship um to each other because relationship is the most important thing ever it's i you know I, we had a wonderful conversation but i didn't really know until after the our first conversation who you were or what you did but it didn't matter and if everything that you had after we had had that conversation, had been stripped away from you, I would have the relationship. And I don't care who you, who you are or what you do. I care who you are. That's what matters to me, right? And I think it's the same with all of us. How do, how, um, how do people see us? Because our jobs, our roles, um, our people that are around us, those things all change. And nothing in life is stagnant. So how do we move together uh, to the next chapter in life? 
And what, what can you do if you've hurt someone? And, you know, you say you're sorry, it's never enough. And you, the, what you can do is, is you, you can be a part of their healing also. So that was why um, I wrote that. So not only healing could flow through me, but also so that I could heal because when you're going heal others that maybe I had hurt along the way, because uh, when you're going through things like that, you're not at your best normal, um, consider it understanding self. Um, because what we are tends to, it comes out through our words and our actions. And so it was one way to say, this, this is a way we can make a difference. And to recognize that in uh, something like a pandemic, I lost 50 people to the pandemic, six of them were relatives. Um, and, and the others I knew well, or I worked with or something had happened. So it was like that the grief would start to heal and then another wound would open, uh, everything would come back. So it became, is this ever going to be over? Uh, and then with the, uh, with the Kintsugi uh, and that concept, it allowed me to see past it and also to see what I had gone through through other people's perspectives that also went through the same kind of things, maybe being the, uh, the clinician that was trying to help um, or the healthcare worker that infected someone or um, another family member. So uh, it was a piece that was kind of, it was personal, it was hard to write, but it was important. Yeah, it's, um, you know, as I heard you talk about it and as I read it, it's so powerful. And this concept of broken, but putting that back together and gold lining the broken edges or pieces that then highlight them, but also in a sense make them better was just fascinating. And you're talking about this, you know, now given COVID and what's going on with different people and all of us, you know, at one point or another have been hurt or hurt others. It's just a beautiful way to look at it and to, to actually not just read or see it, but do something about it. So you, I, I hope that that piece, and I'll make sure we push it out too, gets a lot of reading because I think it will make a difference. And I'm sure it already has in people and just in myself and how I look at things. Unbelievable. So thank you for that, really. Well, thank you. I mean, I think life, there's a, a verse that actually that says that we go from beauty to ashes. And I've watched in hurricanes uh, where everything is flattened. And then you go back a few months later and you see, uh, you know, in Florida and you see the growth restarting and the wildlife. It doesn't really die. It just emerges another way. And um, even when we think that we're at our rock bottom, we really aren't. We're just set to uh, reemerge another way. And if we have the hands of others along the way that reach out a hand and said, I believe in you. You can make it. Every gesture like that, every smile um, is healing. No, no one of us can fix the fact that a horrible thing happened, but we can make the journey better for each other. By getting, yeah, by getting together, by sharing in the relationships, et cetera, makes so much, so much sense. I want to briefly, in the little bit of time we have, discuss just one more area that you actually a third one completely different worked on, and that was masks. And early on, the issue we had with lack of PPE, and I know you were involved in a study on that and some recommendations out of that. 
Yeah, Lihu, uh, uh, my uh, colleague, um, Dr. Professor, uh, Professor Larry Chu, um, we saw that there wasn't a lot of evidence. So we went to experts. We had a Nobel laureate at Stanford, Stephen Chu, Professor Stephen Chu, and, um, and another professor, Yi Trey, and they were uh, physicists and material scientists. So they knew what went into the mask. And we said, can we make better masks? Why should why should the public have the leftovers? Because even healthcare workers are going to be public when they get off work. So it's going to affect all of us. We need evidence and we need uh, we need better masks. So they helped. We, we tested masks. And as a result, the World Health Organization and, and the CDC um, improved their guidance um, on, on the masks. And it was a wonderful group that we worked with because there were people that were working on the virus, people that were working on the fit of masks, people that were working on the decontamination. And we, we had meetings every week and we learned from each other. So everything I know about viruses, I learned from those meetings. <laughs> everything I know about physics is the same. And there were, you know, there were just some fascinating things that came out. And it was, uh, it was a privilege of a lifetime. Uh, I have my supervisors in Oxford even said, they said, Amy, they said, we waited our whole life for a pandemic. And here you are in the middle of what? Um, you know? So, uh, so that's true. And I, um, it's good to be resourceful and to reach out beyond who you know and what you know and realize when you don't know enough and ask and ask, get better information, get people working together. Because even, uh, you know, our symphony, um, every one of us can probably play better by ourselves than a bunch of people in a group that don't know each other. But um, when those instruments come together with skill and with practice, it is a unique and a beautiful sound that can't be reproduced um, any other way. Well, that's just an unbelievable way to finish this show, Amy. I want to thank you so much for coming on. We're going to have to get you back because you really are in so many different areas involved. The patient expertise, the patient involvement is so critical. So thank you so much for joining us on Pop Health Week. Thank you. Uh, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to be here, and I'd love to come back. I, I love your show, and I've been watching the carbon uh, carbon dioxide and the 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 rapid test and the different things that you've tried. And I love the way that uh, you're staying current and um, meeting the very questions that we're all asking. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you, Dr. Price. Amy, it's a pleasure to have you. And back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Amy Price for her time and insights today. For more information or to learn more about Dr. Price's work, follow her on Twitter via at Amy Price, PhD. And finally, if you're enjoying our work here at Pop Health Week, please like the show on the podcast platform of your choice, share with your colleagues, and do consider subscribing to keep up with new episodes as they're posted. We stream live on healthcarenowradio.com Monday through Friday at 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Or for you left coasters like me, 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. For Pop Health Week, my co-host, Fred Goldstein. This is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. Bye now. Bye now.